This is the Ethics Lab Podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Pretty much every day when I look at the news, it something blows my mind. Uh, the, the stories really like surprise me in terms of how far it seems that we might have gone. Uh, but at the same time, I would have to say that some of these stories also make me pause as well. There are certain times when things have gone very far that they may have other kinds of ethical implications. In healthcare, we are able to capture ever-increasing levels and types of data. The potential is there for more accurate diagnosis, more relevant information, which would better inform healthcare decisions, potentially prevent medical errors or unnecessary treatments. Artificial intelligence technologies are increasingly accurate in text, in sound, or in image recognition, with the capability to process and analyze large volumes of data. They have the potential to lighten the load on healthcare professionals and therefore allowing them to spend more time with patients potentially improving healthcare decision making and delivering higher quality healthcare. But what are the ethical questions that arise with this data and artificial intelligence technologies? Our guest today, Anita Ho, is a healthcare ethicist with a background in philosophy and public health who has worked in university and hospital settings in Canada, the United States, and Singapore. She is currently associate professor at the University of British Columbia Center for Applied Ethics and Associate Professor at the Bioethics Program at University of California, San Francisco. A focus of her work has been the ethical impact of innovative technologies such as artificial intelligence in healthcare. We are very pleased to be in conversation with Anita today. And Anita, you just um, published an article in uh, uh, the most recent edition of Hastings Center Report on this issue that we're covering today around artificial intelligence applications and healthcare mm -hmm. ethics. What caused you to first become interested in this area? What was the story that drew you in? So I was uh, working in Singapore as the director of education at the National University of Singapore um, and the Center for Biomedical Ethics there. And one of the projects that we were working on was looking at using smart sensors for patients, particularly in just tracking their daily activities. And so we were thinking quite a bit more about how do we actually use the information? How do consumers actually utilize that for their health behavior? Uh, and how different companies or healthcare agencies or the government uh, may use the data to also help to promote different kinds of behavior and also perhaps develop other kinds of technologies to help promote safer patient care. And one of the issues that had come up to us quite a bit was, is this information actually really clinically meaningful? Would that actually help people in really changing their health behavior? And then there are also other ethical implications in terms of how do we know that the data would be safe and secure? So as we think more about how we actually think about the use of this kind of information in both research and development of different technologies, that we started thinking about how, particularly in artificial intelligence, we're now multiplying different kinds of opportunities, but also at the same time, possibly then also magnify the different kinds of ethical challenges. So right now being in the Bay Area, which is a big hub for various kinds of health technologies, I've been thinking more in terms of how do we think about privacy and the use of data in terms of promoting more technologically advanced care, but at the same time making sure that people actually 
all have equitable access to these kinds of technologies. When we speak of data and artificial intelligence, when we use that word data, you know, what, what spectrum of things are we, are we referring to? So right now in health technologies, uh, it can actually mean many different things. It could be about text. And so uh, I mentioned, for example, even clinical notes. So clinical notes may be things that uh, your doctor may, may put down in your chart when you go to the doctor's office, uh, when you're in the hospital, when they do rounds to check on the patients. So they may be text that the, the physician or the nurses may have written in your chart. It could also be sound. Like I mentioned, it could be audio recordings of different conversations, or it could be smart camera images. And so it could be, for example, we can set up different cameras at patients' homes or using um, so-called computer vision to track and see whether a patient is walking in a steady kind of way or whether the person seems unsteady and may be you know, falling and, and so on and so forth. The data can also be, like you mentioned, um, that your smart devices may be tracking when you're walking and how many steps you have walked, how many stairs you may have climbed, how many miles you have walked. So it could be lots of different things. And I guess with the advance of technologies, just assuming like any other technology over time, they're just becoming increasingly more accurate and more able to mm-hmm. process greater volumes of data. So the ability of these kinds of technologies are just growing exponentially. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's basically the the idea as well, because even very experienced clinicians may only have access to, let's say, hundreds of patients' information or even thousands. But sometimes you may still have patients who might have a rare condition given your patient population. But then there may be lots of cases that are already out there and that can actually help you to diagnose or to give more uh, information to the patient. Uh, but it would take humans much longer time to actually find and then go through the information. Whereas the algorithm can really process a lot of data in very little amount of time. And if we give it enough training data uh, for the algorithm to actually learn about different categories of conditions, let's say skin lesions and so on, uh, that may really help the clinician to pinpoint what the concerns might be and to spend more time with the patient about the other human aspect. So the physician may not have to spend that much time in considering what the patient may have in terms of diagnosis and spend more time in communicating with the patients about his or her concerns, what kind of support the person might need, what the person's expectations may be, and so on and so forth. And that's speaking about algorithms and and mining data that exists in electronic health records Mm -hmm. in large systems or geographies. But in conversations and in your, in your own writing, you've talked about other technologies as well. Another example, if we consider the care of elderly patients, wearable mm-hmm. sensors, smart cameras might be used, might provide non-intrusive ways to assess mm-hmm. physiological measurement, body movement, emotional status uh, with people over time. I'm assuming that's just another, another approach towards some of the AI that's available. Yeah, so there are many companies and research teams that are trying to uh, develop various kinds of technologies that can help elderly people to live at home for as long as possible. 
So sensors may give us data about the person's physiological symptoms and vital signs as well. So seniors who don't want to live in facilities but may actually require monitoring could benefit from that. Um, sensors may be non-intrusive. The patient might be wearing a wearable device, and that can actually feedback or send the information about the person's vital signs to the physicians, and, and they can track some of the symptoms. And then see, for example, if the person's blood pressure may be high or other smart cameras may be able to detect whether the person's steps are being stable. So if a person may be at fall risk, it's possible that it can alert the system. So maybe even family members uh, who have access to the to the particular elderly person's data may be able to see that, you know, let's say mom has been actually not being very steady. So that may be time for the family to take the person in to have a checkup. And, and this may be also helpful when you have senior family members who may have also cognitive decline. Sometimes they can't really remember everything that had happened to them. They may not remember various kinds of symptoms that they had. And so they may only be able to recall uh, what they're feeling uh, just before going to see a doctor. But if you have continuous monitoring of the person, the physician may be able to see a much more longitudinal information and, and not simply rely on patient's own recall, which in some cases could be inaccurate. And I guess a couple of other examples of that are just devices that many of us wear on our wrists, whether they're watches or some kind of athletic device from various companies that measure uh, heart rate. You know, that kind of data stored over time would give a physician a much better picture. That's right. But you can imagine if it was in a senior's situation that the person's Lifestyle in general isn't changing, but on certain days that the person seems to be a lot more sedentary. So that may give the clinicians uh, some clues in terms of maybe something is happening to the person. And so you can also see what the person's trend might be in terms of mobility, heart rate, like you mentioned, uh, and other kinds of activities as well. Anita, regarding care of the elderly and artificial intelligence, what else comes up for you? What issues, concerns so right now, I think that there are at least two other areas to think about. Um, you mentioned before, too, that how, especially in research, we think a lot about people giving us consent. And for elderly people, very often, at least when they still have the cognitive ability to do that, we ask them whether they want to be part of a research project and, and do they want to use these devices to, to allow us to track the movement that hopefully will allow them to live at home for longer, if that's what they would choose. But part of the reason why seniors might be using some of these monitoring devices at home or, or may at least consider using them, they sometimes may not have the ability to tell others what the symptoms are and so on. And particularly for people with Alzheimer's diseases uh, or dementia, that you can imagine situations where the person's cognitive ability may decline. So you may have a person who initially might actually be willing to be part of this project. So the person at the time might be willing to trade off some privacy for the ability to live at home for longer. But as the person's cognitive functioning declines, you can imagine a situation where the person may no longer even realize uh, or recognize that he or she is being monitored. So there may be questions in terms of how do we make sure that people are still consenting to that? They now may be losing privacy without actually realizing that they're losing privacy. Another concern that may come up too is 
as we have more and more monitoring devices or other kinds of technologies uh, that help elderly patients, and particularly people with dementia, and I mentioned a few times, that in many ways, uh, some of these technologies may actually help to lower the burden for caregivers. But there may also be questions that we want to ask ourselves in terms of whether we may also be giving up or in some ways uh, minimizing the, the human contact that elderly people may want to have. So I don't know whether you've heard of this cute little um, furry seal called Peril that has been used quite a bit more now in Asia. Basically, the elderly person can interact with this care bot as if it was like a pet. Now, the really great thing about this particular technology or this type of technology for some patients with dementia is that sometimes when people get very agitated, uh, contact with a pet can actually be very helpful. And, and so you can imagine situations where instead of having to give the person medication to calm the person down, using these kinds of technologies may actually be helpful. At the same time, it may actually be even better if the person has another human uh, to be by the person's side who can also help to calm the person. So there may be questions in terms of whether we may actually rely more and more on these technologies uh, or care robots and put less resources or investment uh, on the human kind of caregiving. Is it possible that we may be giving up other kinds of relational contact that otherwise that the person may want? On the one hand, these technologies may provide other kinds of comfort. Um, if it is used to perhaps supplement what we are already doing, that could be very helpful for pay- for seniors. At the same time, there may be questions in terms of whether uh, then we will invest less in terms of uh, various kinds of human touches, human contact. Uh, that may be also very important to seniors. You know, we're mentioning a couple of examples. I'm just wondering, have there been any recent stories or awarenesses that you've had recently that kind of have, for lack of a better word, have blown your mind? In other words, you just hadn't heard before that we had had that particular technology or ability, and it really surprised you, but it it, it was a, a step forward for AI, or at least it was another example of the ability of such technologies. Any stories that recently have blown your mind that you become aware of in the area of AI? Pretty much every day when I look at the news, it something blows my mind. Uh, the, the stories really like um, surprise me in terms of how far it seems that we might have gone. Uh, but at the same time, I would have to say that some of these stories also make me pause as well, because and there are certain times when things have gone very far that they may have other kinds of ethical implications. So I recently read a story about how some social media posting, for example, can show whether a person may have mental health or perhaps even suicidal ideation because they can basically use like textual analyses and perhaps even some images that people are posting uh, to show the mental status of the person. You can train the algorithm to recognize whether people may be using certain kinds of terminology that can indicate that the person may have depression, anxiety, and so on and so forth. And that's fascinating to me because it may indicate that actually sometimes there may be people who are, who are telling these stories to quote unquote, their friends online, uh, but they may not actually be seeking professional help yet. Uh, the one story that I read that said that 
the accuracy in actually diagnosing somebody with certain kinds of mental health conditions or have thoughts about um, suicide or self-harm, at least, uh, could be as accurate as like 80% or something like that. What do you do with that information? You may have the information, the algorithm may tell you certain things from mining all this social media data to say somebody may be at risk. But that's not a diagnosis from a clinician. Would social media then alert the person about this or something else or or somebody else? I saw a story last week about a person who was wondering about the ads that kept popping up about diaper uh, or other baby products and didn't really understand why the person kept seeing these ads. I'm not pregnant or my partner is not pregnant. We hear, of course, that there are stories about how people would get um, ads because of your, your, your search data. So if you have been searching a lot about baby issues or baby things, then maybe they would give you ads about baby products. And so this person wrote um, to the company and said that I'm not understanding why you are sending me all this information because nobody's pregnant. And then it turns out, and, and then the story is said that the person then a couple of weeks later found out that actually uh, the daughter in the family, the teenage daughter is pregnant, but didn't tell the family. And so because the, the daughter using the same computer has been making those searches. I don't know how the daughter felt about that. <laughs> I kept thinking, ouch, you know, uh, somehow the the company actually actually knew more about what may be happening in the family than the parents might know. You know, another another example that you and I have talked about before is simply mm-hmm. um, in the area of doing healthcare ethics consultations in hospitals. Mm-hmm. Quite often, an ethics consultation team will have to wait until a clinician or maybe a family member or the patient themselves will think of it that maybe, you know, we have a decision in front of us right now that might be able to use the support of an interdisciplinary ethics committee. The challenge can be that that many times uh, that ethics team might only be able to offer their service, might only get that call after some of the best opportunities have already gone by. What some groups are looking at now is the use of big data in electronic health records and utilizing an algorithm that would identify vulnerable patients or patients who might be able or probably could benefit from an ethics consultation by using big data and an algorithm. So for example, an algorithm, uh, we would look for patients who have certain types of conditions you know, mm-hmm. maybe multi-organ failure, or maybe they've been in the ICU for longer than 96 hours on ventilation, those kinds of clinical situations, which identify a patient to be vulnerable, so to speak. And maybe they don't have a surrogate decision maker. And maybe they don't uh, have uh, any advanced directive or pre-identified wishes about how they want their care to occur. That would be another. So you start to identify a number of criteria that would give the highest probability to identify patients who might benefit mm-hmm. from an ethics consultation. That's another way that uh, big data is being mined by artificial mm-hmm. intelligence or algorithms uh, to actually benefit patient care in hospitals. Yeah, and I think that this actually fits very well with a concept of preventive ethics that some people have talked about in relation to how we don't want to wait until a crisis situation happens before we act. Uh, This may, you know, if we could identify people beforehand that they may be at a higher risk of 
having certain kinds of situations that they have to deal with, then if we offer the support early on, uh, it may help us to actually relieve a lot of the potential tension and angst that may come up later on as well. But if I can also actually add one thing to that too, is we have to be careful how we are training the data, uh, whether that could also sometimes have biases as well. So how do we make sure, for example, in that kind of decisions, that whatever it is, whether it's about ethics um, preparation and so on, that the data would be used um, to identify the type of need that people have uh, versus just in terms of thinking about the type of people. Uh, What if, for example, in the end, in some cases, label patients more than helping patients? So I think that those are the kinds of balance that that we want to think about. How do we actually do them in such a way that train the data in such a way that we don't, in the end, continue to stigmatize patients? Even though, in general, that is certainly not our intention. Our intentions are always trying to use the information uh, to help promote better care, better preparation as well. Well, that serves as a great transition. We have been talking about what some of the potential advantages of AI within healthcare. What are some of the other concerns that are coming up or arising around the use of artificial intelligence in healthcare? One thing that you mentioned earlier was in relation to accuracy, how when we have a lot of data in in training and algorithm, the more data supposedly would be the better, uh, that we can get more accurate because we have a a big data set to help us to see if we have looked at hundreds of thousands of x-rays and scans that the algorithm probably can be quite good in detecting lesions and and so on and so forth. But sometimes what we also have to think about is uh, whether the data set that we have is very homogeneous. Uh, So part of my work has been on decision-making and to see whether different populations, uh, people from different cultural backgrounds or or socioeconomic backgrounds uh, and so on have same or, or different kinds of concerns. And one of the questions that had come up quite a bit now in the AI ethics world, and actually even from a scientific perspective, is whether sometimes that the training data that we are using uh, may be focusing on certain population. So whatever the algorithm in the end decide uh, would only be applicable to that population. For example, I mentioned natural language processing earlier, whether that technology in the end helps some patients more than others. Uh, So you can imagine in natural language processing, depending on the technology you're using, uh, you may have recording devices that in the end will record how people talk, uh, the words that they use, and you transcribe the words. Uh, Or you may actually even have an algorithm to see how people talk whether they have pauses, whether they have difficulty finding words and so on. And and you may be trying to train the algorithm to see whether this patient's, let's say, Alzheimer's uh, dementia have exacerbated, have, have actually got worse. So in, in, in theory, that sounds really good because you can then track a patient and then see whether they, they have somehow declined and their condition has declined. But if the data set that we are using uh, is mostly on patients whose first language is English and are coming from certain regions especially, it's not quite clear whether that algorithm would be as accurate uh, for other patients. So you can imagine there may be patients whose first language is not English or have a different kind of accent or use different terminologies because of their cultural backgrounds uh, that when they pause, it may be because 
they have to think of the English words that may be somehow misinterpreted by the algorithm to indicate a decline in the person's cognitive functioning. So there could be inaccuracy, there could be mistakes being made. And in some of these cases, that could worry the patients, um, but that can also lead to waste of resources as well if, if we are making misdiagnosis based on what the algorithm is telling us. And if we compare, do we have a bit of a history of sorting things like this out? In other words, this concern around privacy of data. And I'm, I'm thinking in healthcare tissue banks where patients might donate tissue uh, to be utilized for research, other purposes. Do any of those themes around privacy, confidentiality spill over into what we're now considering around artificial intelligence and data there? That's a really good question. Um, I mentioned that I also work in research ethics. So I, I sit on research ethics boards. I help to give education to researchers about how they should conduct research in the ways that would be most respectful of participants' rights. And so in very traditional kind of research settings, uh, if I were being recruited for a study, researchers would tell me what the purpose of the research may be and what the processes might be and what the risks are and how they would keep my data and so on and so forth. And usually the data is only for this particular study. And then if I decide to enroll in this particular research, I sign the papers and I do whatever um, would be part of this research and that's it. But uh, with data banks and tissue banks that you mentioned, now it's not the case that when you give your data or, or your samples, uh, that is only for one study anymore. So in, in some cases too, then I think that the line between what is clinical care and, and, and your record for your clinical care and what becomes data for, let's say, AI development, that line is getting more and more blurry. Even if I go to a physician's office, if I go to a hospital, the hospital may have my records and patients may think then when they, whenever they look at my record, they are only thinking about this in the context of my care. But um, as we really need data from almost everyone to actually build uh, a diverse enough data set and to build various kinds of healthcare technologies, the situation now is often that medical centers and especially large medical centers will have to decide whether they will actually share patients' data uh, with different companies that may be developing these technologies. So sometimes patients may or may not know how the data uh, might be used. And usually when you're being admitted to the hospital, the they would tell you how the data may be actually utilized uh, or maybe shared with other parties but very often you can also imagine that patients may be tired, they may be feeling very sick or weak, they may or may not actually know what they're consenting to. So there are people who are asking then, so if that's the case, uh, just asking people for consent about whether they would be willing to share their medical information uh, may not actually be enough to protect their privacy. Because once your, your data is out there, people may not actually have control over where it goes. So there are then other questions in terms of broader uh, governance structure to see how do we make sure that, let's say, your medical center or the healthcare organizations that you visit will actually be very responsible in how they may share the information with other commercial entities in particular uh, in developing various kinds of health technologies. 
Now, I'm making the assumption that if such sharing did occur, that the, the data couldn't be identified with individual patients. But maybe that's the wrong assumption. Well, in general, it is. It is the case. And so I, I don't think that medical centers would want to sell data or, or share data uh, with people's identification still being there. Now, of course, uh, there are general, I don't think it's just about AI, but there are general concerns these days about how systems can be hacked. Uh, so it's not just an AI issue from even political systems, voting and, and so on. There are lots of concerns about how people's data may or may not be secure. So that's a much more broader question in terms of how do we think about cybersecurity in the first place. So Anita, what steps are you seeing that organizations, maybe health systems as well, what steps are being taken to ensure privacy, confidentiality? What infrastructure, what steps are you starting to see or, or you've seen? Uh, be put in place? Mm -hmm. uh, so I would say that there are at least two different types of situations happening. One more about the type of data set that we are actually using to make sure that the technologies that we are developing are accurate and representative of the wide range of populations. And so whatever data set that you're actually using uh, would be representative of the patients that you want to serve. So many companies are really now trying to look more in terms of whether they actually have uh, representative data of so people who are come who come from different walks of life. So I mentioned about natural language processing earlier. So there may be questions in terms of how companies are trying much harder to have more people uh, to participate and to to provide their data um, that are coming from different socioeconomic or cultural backgrounds. In terms of privacy, so many health systems are now working very hard in terms of their own, even internally, to really have these conversations about how would they want to govern the data, who actually owns the data, and what types of data would they share, if let's say, with for-profit entities. Um, and also just questions in terms of how do we think about also profit sharing. If um, health systems are sharing the data what would that mean? Um, are they already automatic conflict of interest um, because they are selling the data or they're sharing the data in, in ways that may also have some kind of financial implication for the organization? Also, once they have shared the data with, let's say, these other external entities, how may these external entities actually use that information? Uh, who may, in the end, have access to all of that data? Anita, we've talked about a number of issues. I'm just wondering, as you look towards the future, are there types of issues or questions that are emerging that we're really just beginning to ask the question, what would a couple of those be that you think are just right around the corner for mm -hmm. us? I think the, the issue about biased data is certainly one concern. I don't know if you've heard about this. So San Francisco, I think now it has become the first city to actually ban using facial recognition in police work, partly because the training data that had been used uh, was biased. So it may actually be leading to biases in terms of how police may deal with various kinds of situations. Uh, facial recognition programs have not been as uh, accurate for people of color, for example, because they didn't have enough training data. And if we are not giving enough uh, diverse data, then the result may also be very biased. And sometimes we wouldn't even know until actually later on that we start to realize that, wait a minute, the results that we're getting uh, seem to be reflecting the same kind of biases. But of course, the problem is that very often we wouldn't even recognize it because if we have the human 
uh, bias in the first place. That sometimes is also much slower for us to recognize that the results that we're getting from the algorithm is also biased because it is so. I, I guess in some ways, if it is so embedded, the the discrimination or biases have, have been so embedded into the whole culture that we may not actually even see it. There may be questions in terms of how do we actually make sure that. We in the workforce, for example, have people who actually are attuned to these issues. We have programmers who are also recognizing these issues to be working on these、um, technologies in the first place, so that they can make sure that from the very beginning in in using or developing data sets that they recognize that there could be biases that happen. Anita, to understand how bias occurs.、Mm-hmm. As one is designing artificial intelligence,、uh, can you give us another example of of how bias looks? Yeah. So, for example,、uh, skin cancer may be an example. So, in recent years, there have been some studies that show that you may be able to use an AI system、uh, to more accurately detect malignant skin lesions from various kinds of images. So, the idea is that well, if you have Enough training data、uh, for the algorithm to see which types of skin lesions are malignant and which types are benign. Then you can really help patients to not have to get overtested or have surgeries that may be unnecessary. So that's great, right? So if we if we can do that, and especially if the algorithm can be even more accurate than dermatologists, then we can actually really help in diagnostics. What they realize is that actually the the data sets that have been used have been mostly、uh, from people who have lighter skin, and that's perhaps partly because、um, people with lighter skin have been disproportionately suffering from the disease. So then the data that you can have、um, would perhaps reflect the the population that has this particular disease more often. Sure, it may be the case that these algorithms can detect malignant skin lesion. Accurately for people with lighter skins, but it may not actually work as well、uh, for people whose skin may be darker. Then we may not recognize that, let's say, a person with darker skin may actually have certain kinds of skin lesion that could be problematic,、uh, that require attention. And but because we are assuming that the algorithms are accurate. Then、uh, we may not actually do more examination for this particular person, whom the the algorithm tells us does not have、uh, malignant skin lesion. So it may not be supposedly、uh, a, a prejudicial、um, or you know ill-intended kind of situation, but your result may still be the same. That in the end, the algorithm is not as accurate、uh, for certain populations. Appreciation to our guests today for their advice and reflection. As always, appreciation to our listeners as well. Thanks, everyone. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again. 